How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as well as some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual thing. How can your story be good that it isn't the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the culture is How is that actually It seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical than being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy, and today our guest is Drew Jackson. Drew is a poet who came late to writing poetry. Although he would say that his love for the art form began with hip-hop, learning to put words together from Nas's Illmatic, which is already surprising because you're so young. Like that you would, I would think it would almost start with Stillmatic, you know, at your age, you know, so I'm, so I'm surprised, like that you somehow went back. That's pretty, we'll have to, maybe I'll have to ask you about that. And Drew writes at the intersection of justice, peace, and contemplation, having a passion to contribute toward a more just and whole world. Born in Williamstown, New Jersey, Drew currently calls New York City home. So do you live in the East Village around there? Yes, I live um, just, East Village technically ends at 14th Street. I live at 16th, but it's like, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't know. I used to live on Third Street in Bowery a long time ago. Oh, did you? For real? Before, before it was what it is today. Like now, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. like, oh, the Bowery's dope. When I was there, like 15 years ago or whatever it was, it was a whole different scene, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Drew holds a BA in political science from the University of Chicago and an MA in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. And while he's not traversing the world of poetry, he spends his time pastoring Hope East Village, a church that he planted in March of 2018. He also serves as the president of PAX, an organization focused on promoting the peace of Jesus in the 21st century. And he's blessed to share his life with Janae and his two twin daughters who are seven. What are your daughters' names? Zora and Sahila. Zora and Sahila, twin. You just started off, you're like, let's just... Let's just let's do it all. Let's just jump in. <laughs> yeah, and that's it, man. That's it. <laughs> man, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to to be with me personally and to be with the listeners. I really think with so many great guests we have on, I think to have somebody who's both on the ground, <clears throat> excuse me, pastoring, but also a person who has this energy they use towards poetry and towards imagination and also to see how those two are also connected in the single flow of a life is a really special thing so yeah man thanks for coming on dude and taking the time yeah nah, thanks for having me on let's you know sometimes i'll, I'll ask people if, if we zoom out a little bit you're born in new jersey you end up in philadelphia i'm assuming like pretty young you moved to philadelphia like what are well, I never know. I, I grew up in Jersey just across the bridge from Philly. So oh, I mean I never Yeah, oh, I never gotcha. lived in Philly. Oh, yeah, okay. I have a bunch of family in Philly. My mom's from Philly, but I I lived right across the bridge. Oh, okay. When we have a mutual friend, Dan, who who when he told me that I must have just assumed because in my mind I'm like, why would you want to be a 76ers fan unless you were born in <laughs> <laughs> 
that's that, that's that's a different kind of love. I mean, they they, like they were my they they are my home. So okay, yeah. And also, era Iverson era. That's a whole. That's a, that's a different yeah. time too. Yeah. If if we zoom out a bit, you know, what are some of the bigger picture movements that lead you till now? You know, you're you're born you, Chicago for school, and also mm-hmm. ending up in Fuller. But also, like some of the bigger picture. I was in church or I wasn't. And then I went to youth group. Like what are some of those, a couple of those big picture movements that give some of that background to where you're at now? Yeah. So I, so I did grow up in church. Um, I'm the, the young, I'm the youngest of four boys. And um, my parents had us, had us in church. I mean, I, I church is what I remember growing up, but the church we were in, was a pretty conservative fundamentalist Baptist church, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because like I, and I, you know, over the years, I've kind of learned to take with me the good and leave what wasn't healthy. Um, so uh, to, to borrow a phrase from, from Richard Rohr, when he talks about, you know, including and transcending like what what was unhealthy and you know taking with you so i feel like i've had to do some a lot of processing of my own upbringing in church to see okay what was healthy what was not and so um but yeah growing up in in that but one of the things that was true about that experience for me was that um which is i think is the case for a lot of people who grew up in that context it's like i I, the gospel that I was thrown up was very much like, you know, you and your personal relationship with Jesus, kind of individualistic gospel um, that didn't really have anything to say to anything else, mm. except it, it, it did. It was like everything in the world is bad. You need to stay away from it. Right. Nice. Um, and, uh, but there was no talk of, justice there was really no talk of love of neighbor at all it was just you know so um but i i had to i i it was weird because i had that but then my parents who were in this didn't really buy into it Hmm. and so they always i feel like they would help fill in the gaps for me growing up um and part of that is just growing up as as a black man like in a black family navigating uh american life in this body right it's like my parents had to be real with us about stuff, mm. right so stuff that wasn't touched on in church or anything you know my parents had to talk about and so we we had those conversations and it was just my parents taught us my parents taught us about just the movements growing up in black history and um but but it, it took me a while for that to bridge with any sort of theological framework. It was like, I get that justice is important. Then there's this gospel thing over here. How did they come together? And so that didn't start to happen until a little bit later on for me. Um, when I went up to school, uh, so so I, I grew up in Jersey. I spent, I, I moved down to Atlanta um, and I finished my senior year school in Atlanta. Mm. moved up to Chicago for undergrad. And when I went to, I went to school, um, I think that was the first time that I really started to kind of have some real questions for myself about, 
this faith that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I studied political science and, um, you know, we're jumping right in and kind of talking about just the, all the, all the stuff that's happening in the world from like global humanitarian crises into, mm-hmm. you know, why wars are breaking out between nations and, uh, reading books like the strategic logic of suicide terrorism. Like we're just jumping into all this stuff. And so for me, I had to start, I started asking a question of like, all right, where is God, where are you at in all of this stuff? All, you know, um, and just reckoning in a new way with, uh, the realities of the city that I was living in. So living in Southside Chicago and just looking at the rebel and, um, educational economic disparities and inequities in the city. And um, I just was like, look, what, Jesus, what do you have to say to this? Is the, is the gospel big enough for this, right? Is it good enough? Mm-hmm. And um, like that, that set me on this new journey of discovering Jesus in a new way. It was almost a reconversion of sorts where uh, I felt like I discovered a Jesus that I had not known before. Um, a Jesus who had a whole lot to say about justice, uh, who, who shows up on the scene saying, you know, I'm here to preach good news to the poor, right. To, to liberate those who are oppressed. Like, I'm like, how come I didn't hear about any of this stuff growing up? Like, why wasn't this taught to me? So I, you know, let me me interrupt you as you're, you know, there's a, you're like being born again, you know, through the Jesus that's cosmic that's social that's political that's lord over all that has something to say about every single like dimension breadth width Mm -hmm. of society right and what were Mm -hmm. some of those like initial or just voices along the way where when you're reading them and when you're hearing them you're like they're the ones who are filling in the the blanks they're the ones who are like kind of doing all that for you to like really get your imagination going and you know when your heart opens up you're like oh like when you make those connections of those two things coming together yeah yeah so it was a it was a few things um so one uh a friend of mine who so i had gotten connected to uh campus ministry uh that asked me to help so it was connected with intervarsity they helped they asked me to help start black ministries on on, at campus Mm -hmm. on campus and so and gotten connected with them but the the volunteer staff was a guy named brandon rancher and Brandon, uh, Brandon was a guy who was a seminary student at the time at North Park. He was there at North Park. He ended up, but uh, he just, I, he was really the first person that really started to like introduce me to some some stuff, some some different people, some different voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've become like really good friends over the years, um, but you know, I started, I started reading James Cone because of Brandon, right. Um, Howard Thurman and some of these other, some of these other voices that just kind of were deeply into that world of liberation theology. Um, uh, but also the contemplative and mystical tradition, seeing those things come together like that. Yeah. So, um, I would say, um, reading like like Cone and, and and Thurman um were huge for me pretty early on. Um and uh also and here's the other interesting thing too is that 
I always though had this sort of mystical sort of contemplative stream within me because of my mom. Mm. So even though we had grown up in this like fundamentalist Baptist church, and I told you like my, my mom didn't really buy into it. Like she's, she's the whole time like reading, reading Catholic mystics and mm. kind of putting, putting some of those, those books on my nightstand, like, Hey, check this mm. out. And so like, I'm, I'm sort of like, taking this in and trying to process those things. And I think some of that didn't really start to like click for me until a little bit later, mm. but, uh, but it was there. So, so my friend Brandon and what he introduced me to, but then there was a, a, a pastor who had planted a church um, right in Memphis. Um, and he, it, it was my, the church was the first church experience that I had been in where it was just like, it was different. And I couldn't at first couldn't put my finger on it, but then, you know, you see being in that space and truly seeing community where you have, you have this sort of spectrum of folks who are sharing life together mm-hmm. from PhDs at the university of Chicago to, to folks in, in situations of houselessness, mm-hmm. right sharing life and and people advocating for people and like it just showing up in different ways and so being in that space i was like this is different mm-hmm. and then when i got to know the pastor who's who had become a mentor me um one of the things i noticed about him was that like i would around the neighborhood and i would ended up talking to to some folks who who just were out there who were uh, living out on the streets and stuff like that. But they would all know my pastor and his family by name. They knew him. They knew his kids. They considered that church their church. Like, And I was like, how, like, there's just something different about this. So I think that experience combined with some of the other stuff was just sort of like this immersion into this new way of seeing. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and what's so cool about that story and the power of actual local expressions, flesh and blood mm-hmm. is that it's both theoretical reading James Cone, reading Thurman, reading folks like yeah. that. You're like, holy, like, especially when you, yeah. whenever you, whenever a person first gets introduced to liberation theology, regardless of their door in, whether it's yeah. Latin American or studying womanist thought, like at first yeah. you're just like, like it, it's, it's for me is the most, like exciting one of the most exciting moments when you start to see that because it just opens everything up but what's cool about your story is the community and the embodiedness and the flesh and blood you know like i've told people before like the best translation of the word of god is not in greek and hebrew it's in flesh and blood so when you see it, you know, like that community is helping pull things together within you and in life, you know, that if you, when you read, it's just in yeah. your mind, but the embodiness starts to align everything. So that that's, it's amazing because it speaks to the power of the church, you know, and yeah. of local communities, man. I love yeah. that. It, yeah. I mean, even to the point, like for me, when I, when, when stuff started opening up for me in that way, like I can remember just being in my uh in my room um i'm just like revisiting this I'm just like taking them in because i'm just seeing all this new stuff that i hadn't seen before mm-hmm. and i come i come to matthew 25 right and read matthew 25 and and um you know you, whatever you've done to the least of these you've done to, done to me and, and i'm just like 
I like I I had this moment where I literally I got up and I walked outside and I'm like praying. I'm like I'm like I'm like Jesus. I'm ready. I'm like I'm ready to give whatever I have right now. Like I was in that sort of space. And, and but what's interesting, what was what was cool, and I, I just feel like this was a sort of a spirit moment um, that was really about my formation more than anything. Mm. I'm saying it. And I literally, I said, I said, Lord, I'm ready to give this shirt off my back. And, mm. and two seconds later, this lady comes up to me and she says, sir, would you be willing to get me some clothes? I said, stop. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. like, like in that moment. Right. And, and so we were actually standing right. It was like, right across the street from this clothing store. Yo, so, it was, no, so we no, no, walked it was, in yo, there. It was winter. It was winter. It was 12 degrees. <laughs> no, it was like, <laughs> so it was, it was just kind of one of those moments that, that I remember, but I felt like, okay, the, the spirit is trying to do something to me right now with that. Mm. Um, yeah. But the, even when you talk about sort of the embodiment. Yeah. Mm, no, nah, it's an amazing story. Dude. That's classic. Um, you know, in a world, so for people listening, Drew's newest book, which I believe came out in September, right? Yeah, September. God Speaks Through Womb. So it's a book about poetry. Drew writes a foreword, but it's a book about poetry. It's, sorry, it's not a book about poetry. It's a book of poetry. Mm-hmm. And here's what I would say. I, someone can look at you and say, you know, you're, you're smart, you're educated, you understand a lot of the complexity of life. You can look at complex things like politics and economics and how power works mm-hmm. and how structural racism and institutionalized forms of race, all, all this stuff, right? And in a world where people obsess over power, bow down to the bottom line or get fixated on celebrity, that's, and that's just the church. Who knows what everybody else is doing? And also, <laughs> and, all, and, on, on, and also, in a world where so many people are just struggling to get by day by day, mm-hmm. paycheck to paycheck, day, moment by moment. With all of that said, like, why imagination? Why poetry? Why is that prophetic energy so necessary and powerful? Is that not naive is that not childish is it not foolish to think in a world where you can see how power really works to believe that poetry and the prophetic you know the prophetic imagination if you will mm-hmm. why what is the power what is the need of that in a world where there's so much going on mm. one of the things i always say is that um primary tools of evil is to get us to a point of thinking that this is all that there is mm-hmm. and that this is all that there can be. So good. Right. To, to stop us from imagining something new. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, that's why I actually believe that, you know, when I often talk about um, when, G, you know, the, the kingdom of God, right. I, I I think of that as God, God's dream for the world. This is, mm. this is God's dream, right? Mm. Um, and when we're invited to participate in this, in this dream, right? Uh, we can't do that without imagination. We can't do that with it without the ability to see something beyond what we currently see. And I believe that's what repentance fundamentally is. 
it's it's actually a change of right it means change of change your mind about this right and part of that is is changing changing our minds about what actually can be and so when jesus says you have to become like a child in order to participate in the life of the kingdom part of that is this you know right that children have this ability to imagine new worlds to see beyond the current right and live into that as if it's real right and, and put flesh in a way that we can't and so i think that um part of this is this invitation to keep dreaming to keep imagining to not let evil get us to the place where we settle into the status quo right and so that's why i think um imagination in general i think poetry um is part of that because you know there's a reason that so many of the biblical writers were poets, right? When you look at the prophets, right? They were poets. Obviously the psalmists were poets. And even if you look at the, the parables of Jesus and so much of what he does in his parables is poetic. He uses poetic devices. And um, it's this, see, when we, see, we, we are in this space where we like, so like we love, answers and certitude and give me right but but poetry is not it's not something that is about giving us answers it invites us more deeply into the questions right um you don't you don't come to poetry because you're looking for a concrete answer it, it says poetry is always saying to us stay with the mystery of this mm-hmm. stay with the question of this don't leave it don't run off to an easy answer but stay here and uh which is why Jesus ends all his parables the way he does. It's like, whoever has ears to hear, I'm not really giving you an answer. I'm I'm inviting you more deeply into this. Um, There's a, there's a quote that I love to share that I think really encapsulates what, um, what poetry kind of is about um, and how it invites us into these questions. Um, And it's a quote by the Austrian poet, Rainer Maria Rilke. Um, and it's in one of his, one of his books where it's called letters to a young poet. Mm. And he's writing his correspondence with, uh, this, this poet, this young poet, uh, who's just kind of trying to get started in poetry. His name is Franz Coppers. And, um, Coppers has all of these questions for Roka about poetry, about life, about love, about, um, all of these different things. But one of the things that Rilke says to him um, has always stuck with me. And uh, I just want to read it because I think it, it's, yeah, it really kind of speaks to why I think poetry is important. Mm. He says this, he says, he says, be patient toward all that is un- unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Mm. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Mm. And I just, I I love that. I love that. Um, So, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, there's so much there. I mean, you know, what being at Fuller and poet imagination, 
I would assume mm-hmm. that Brugemann's work in some way has been a part of your life. You know, mm-hmm. that's just my assumption. Because for me, his work on the prophetic imagination and how he's continued is like one of the best contributions like I've seen from theologians. You know, to me, yeah, just, yeah. like our church out here is named Imagine. Oh, is it? And, and, and that thinking that he helps lead and invite us into and me into of imagination always comes before implementation. You know, when you're walking towards yeah. the edge it is that we don't need managers of the past. We need imaginers of new futures, mm-hmm. you know, and that ability where, you know, what he would say of the poet or the prophet in, invites people to imagine different futures. Yep. And by doing so invites those new possibilities in the present. Yeah. Yeah. And that right there, that's why, I mean, I, I asked that first question. I mean, I have my own answers on it. I just like to frame it that way because, yeah, yeah. and the work that you're doing and what you're saying is, you can be lib- we can be liberated by daring to ask the question, what if in a world where it is, when you talk about those evil tools where it feels so limited by what is, you know, the prophet keeps walking mm-hmm. up to the edge and saying, but it, it's beyond that. There's a new thing. There's a new yeah. birth. There's a new, we're not stuck here. Yeah. That's the amazing stories. When you see young people who grew up in environments where it's hard to imagine and you don't have a lot of people mm-hmm. you can see living beyond the expectations. But you, whenever you hear a story, there's this common thread of that one kid could somehow see a life yeah. bigger than where he was. And that's the power of imagination that stayed with that kid, you know, wherever they were. Mm-hmm. So I asked that because especially as we get older, it's almost like, the more real you see how life is and complex and hard and painful. And you see the crucifixions and the crosses of everyday life, the journey into for the poet into the depth of it becomes even more urgent and necessary because that's what it is, is can someone still Mm -hmm. imagine that, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think to be drawing from that at your age and especially as a leader is such a, it's such a powerful thing, man, that that you're doing right now and that you're, you're showing people not just talking about, but it's a book of, Mm-hmm. poetry so mm-hmm. here, here's my next question who is the poet right who is the prophet you know and also or or you could go to to go with that what are the poets and prophets in our time and in our space and in our context in 2021 and in, in the u.s and where we're at what are the poets and prophets that you see that you would recognize as those things what are they saying to us today and all what does that prophetic fire within you compel you to say today in our time and place that's a that's a good question (laughs) out there (laughs) who who are the poets who are the prophets who is what 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 are characteristics of the one who's willing to imagine beyond our current circumstances when honestly it's not easy to do that Mm -hmm. it's not easy to have an imagination for the future when you've had your heart broken when you've seen things fall apart when it feels like and for for many people who have been marginalized in our society they don't just feel like it but they have a system leveraged against them flourishing in the way it 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 wouldn't be for let's just say people who look like me like it's Mm -hmm. a different situation so Mm -hmm. who is that one what is in that person that keeps Dry, how, how, why can they keep doing that? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that. 
Um, one of the things that I'm thinking about now is you to speak from my own social location um, as as a black man who's experienced certain things and you know like I I I think that part of being part of being a poet and being holding that sort of prophetic imagination is that like for black folks we've had to right it's 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 almost as if if we don't continue to imagine and dream like we, we wouldn't be here mm. we wouldn't be here right to to imagine i mean even starting when you you starting in the middle from the middle passage right coming coming across those uh across those waters in such treacherous conditions not only being able to see from the light the small light beams that are coming through the deck above right hunched in with all of these bodies that are right it's like imagination starts there of even being able to make it to you know what i mean like what's what's coming is there is there something for me that is worth surviving for that is worth continuing to fight and struggle for um and that that's something that continues and so even when i like i have a poem called called tradition where where i say in the poem, I say, we pass down this tradition like collard greens and black eyed peas. It's in mouths and bones and blood. It runs through our veins, right? It's this, this idea of like, this is, this is something that our parents and our grandparents teach us to, we, we, and it's not this thing that is unrooted or untethered from the reality of the world, right? Like we know the pain. We know the reality. We know the struggle. And still, there has to be this eye that says, this isn't all there is, right? And I think part of that starts with saying, what is said about me as a, as a human being, as a person, is not all there is. Like, I am a child of God. I am a human being created in the image of God, which means that I have agency, which means that I have power, which means that I have something to contribute to this world for its good and for its flourishing, and so what is that? How do I dream about what that is in a world that tells me I have nothing to offer, right? And so, so I think individually and communally, there's this sense of like, there's more, there's still more. And, um, and that has been sort of part of our own continuing to thrive as a people. Um, yeah, yeah. That's powerful. No, that's amazing. I, I this phrase came to my mind. It was in something I was working on recently. But it feels like when you say that, because the imagination being tethered to the yes. concrete reality is not, not an escape from, but born out of and going yeah. beyond, right? And, and the power of that yeah. and the power of imagination, it feels like in that sense, the poet or the prophet is the one who can accept death and affirm life in the exact same, the same time. So I, you know, I love um, one of the, one of the images that Paul, the apostle Paul gives the church when he talks about, he says that. That's why it's good to have pastors on here. We get biblical <laughs> references. We get Paul. I'm, this is a, the first Paul reference in a long time. on the church. Time, right? <laughs> Listen, well, I just, well, he says, he says that as, as the church, he says, we are those on whom the ends of the ages have met. 
right? Mm. And meaning, right, that we as the church are meant to be people who stand at the hinge point of the old age that is passing away and the new age that is coming in. Mm. And we live in the tension of that. Mm. It's like one foot in the old, old world, one foot in the new. And we don't resolve it. We don't try to resolve it. We live with it. We hold them both together, both feeling the pain, lamenting the pain, carrying it in our bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yet glimpsing something that is to come and bearing witness to it, right? Mm-hmm. To me, that is, that is, that's the poet. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, if the church is to be anything, it, it is to be poet in that mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. right? So I love to connect that image where, um, to when then Paul again, right, says, says, we are God's poema, God's poem, mm. right? Um, and so it's like, to me, it's that picture, right? Mm. Of, of being those sorts of people in the world. Mm. Um, we haven't done that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, I th- but I think if we, if, we, if we did that, how beautiful it would be. Oh, it's so good. Um, here's a, a question I'm you know, interested in. Who are where are some of the the prophets or at least some of the people you see mm-hmm. living out speaking with that prophetic energy in our culture today you know it could be religious people it could be you know leaders from churches but it also could be cultural voices it could be artistic voices where do you see these eruptions of this prophetic poetry around us those people who are speaking truth and saying no to what is everything that sort of is anti this Jesus's imagination, you know, for the kingdom of God are also people who are saying yes to alternative futures. Where do you see some of those for you personally, like where you Mm -hmm. see some of that? Um, Well, I'm going to advocate for, for the poets here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. So I, I do think, and I, I literally, I tell, I tell, pastors and church leaders all the time when I talk to them like y'all need to be reading modern poets because Mm -hmm. the poets are saying poets are saying things and inviting inviting us into spaces that a lot of people like part of part of poetry is vulnerability right Mm -hmm. there's this opening and so you know where you know like pastors will sometimes talk about like you know, wanting to actually sit and hear people, what's going on inside of them, where are the pain points, where are the poets are just laying that out on the page. Mm. Um, not in a way that is just easy, here it is, but is in a way that says, if you want this, come and sit with me. Mm. If you, if you, I, I'm giving you access to this story and this pain um, and this joy, but come and sit with it. And so um, I really think that just as a practice hearing sitting with some of the poets so I can name some of them that, that, are, that I think today. And, and a lot of them, interestingly enough, have are deeply like are deeply spiritual, maybe have been connected to faith traditions in the past. A lot of them have experienced hurt from the church, mm-hmm. but they process that in their poetry. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so people like Jericho Brown, Right. Jericho Brown is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Um, he's a, a, a black poet professor at Emory University. Um, but, you know, he, he talks about he talks about his own story and, um, you know, being a black gay man 
right? Who's grew up in Louisiana and has had his own experiences with, with the church, right? But it's one of the things that I love about Jericho Brown, I really appreciate about him is that he's very real about the pain that he experienced and, you know, naming it and giving voice to that and pointing to something different. But he also does not tear, he, does, he doesn't tear down the church. He doesn't actually mm. spend his time doing that. Mm. And I feel like you don't find many voices like that. Mm. Like, and so I, I, his is an interesting voice to listen to, even though he's not, to my knowledge, like at this point, like in the church, right? But he's speaking in such a way where it's like, oh, we need to be listening to this voice, right? Um, and uh, so he's, he's definitely one that, that I would name. Um, there are, I mean, there's so, there, there are so many. Um, to kind of step out of the, the, the poet space, um, I think in general, the, just list, really listening to the movements of, of young, young people right now mm. who are, um, I, I think of even back to what, 2014, 15, when you saw the movement in Ferguson, right, rise up. Um, and the way that uh, the youth who were taking to the streets were actually challenging the clergy and saying, where are you? Where have you been? We're out here. Where are you? Right. And, and, um, and it's, and the clergy that showed up, showed up not to take the lead, but to follow their lead. Right. I think that that's continuing to happen. Right. And that, that we need to be listening. And I think the, I think our, our children, right. Are always they have to lead the way in imagining something new. Mm. Right. Um, and uh, they're the, the ones who are loudest about uh, what's going on with our environment. Why aren't we listening? Right. What are the changes we need to make? Right. Are we willing to listen to um, to our children in order to, to as those who then hold power in different capacities to implement change? Right. Or, or are we not? So I think that's, that's one of the, the the areas I think, you know, people, people like William Barber and the poor people's campaign and the work that they're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, <sighs> clergy like Tracy Blackman, um, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, those are, those are a few. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. I think it's and it, it's good one for people to have actual references to know because mm-hmm. I think there are whether people are asking the question consciously or not people are wondering like well who are those people who are yeah. doing this well who are those people who are grounded in their tradition and imagining new futures maybe beyond any particular tradition but still mm-hmm. this leading voice of imagining a better future not for this particular religious tradition, but for the world that we're all living in, you know? So I think those specific references are great. And when you have clergy, when you have religious folks doing it, it's amazing. You know, when you have people from your own own tradition, which people don't always know how we have a long legacy. It might always be a thin stream within a larger flow. That's too comfortable with the status Mm -hmm. quo, but there's always streams. It's always there. Contemplative. There's always streams of the prophetic. There's always streams of like, you know, 
look when people look back that's one of the gifts of going to seminary learning about oscar romero learning about the berrigan brothers learning especially if people get into black theology and womanist thought in the black prophetic christian tradition you're like dude it's all there like when you learn about fanny lou hamer like learning about it's always there it's just a small stream and it's hard to find that's what's that's what sucks is it's hard to find because the dominant is not always becoming that poem, as you say, as well. Yeah, as yeah. We're not always standing between the age as well. Yeah. You know, it's I, easy to be just be custodians and chaplains for the empire mm-hmm. and the status quo, as opposed to those people who are willing to put their lives and their bodies on the line. You know, there's a reason why it's just a stream because it's so real and there's a yeah. cost to doing well, it. I mean, to that point, like when you talk about how there's always this, they're always there. You know, these voices are always there. I so I just got back from I took a I went with a group of pastors um, from around the country and we did a pilgrimage through the American South. And we um, just to. You know. Reckon grapple grapple with our own history. Right. Um, Story. And. um, We visited we started in New Orleans, spent a few days there and just meeting with different people, activists, historians, right? Started in New Orleans, then went to Jackson, Mississippi, met with some more uh, local leaders there. Um, was that was that the same one that Jackie Lewis was on too, or she was doing her own thing? She No, she was not. She was not on Okay, that. okay. Yeah. So different. Um, but yeah, I went to Jackson, then went to Selma, Alabama, mm. and then ended in Montgomery. And all along the way, we're, we're just meeting with folks who are doing this very thing, right? Um, most names you don't know, some of them that you may be more familiar with. Um, and uh, But I think just one of the things I walked away with, um, and these were, all, uh, these were all Black leaders, right? Um, and the thing, I, I just, I walked away with that where it was just like, there are, there are so many beautiful people in this world mm. who, despite what we've experienced, are just imagining something new. I mean, even we spent time with two guys who were um, wrongly convicted and who had been incarcer- incarcerated in Angola prison for both of them for 20 plus years. Um, and they ended up being able to get out. Wow. And uh, so sitting with them and hearing about the work that they're doing around criminal justice reform, right? How, how they've, they've taken this and, it, and it's become this thing where they're, they're like, we got to imagine something new. There's got to be something better. And they're leading the charge in that, right? They're speaking new life into that from a place that not like, I can't speak from that place, mm. right? But they're, they're, they're holding this thing, right? Where in their own bodies, in their own stories, they hold the pain of it and yet there's still this newness that they're looking at and imagining um and one of the one of the guys is a um he's a writer himself an artist and a poet and so we were talking about this very thing um so it's just i think to that point it's like there are people it's there it's happening how do we how do we learn to listen um to those voices when they're not always they're not the voices that are always brought to the the fore yeah, that's, I think, one of the consistent, like, points of tension struggles when you are a person who 
is a is a part of our tradition and the Christian tradition and cares about it and you know is wants to be a part of creating the future is talking about justice is great yeah but doing it doesn't feel the same you know like yeah. you listen to a 20 minute TED talk or you're in an auditorium and you hear a talk and you hear you hear 10 you hear <clears throat> four stories that were over a span of 10 years and just hearing those four stories, you're like, this is amazing. Yeah. What you don't hear is the 10 years in between of what day-to-day -day life is like in neighborhoods, right. working with people, organizing, doing all that. Yeah. I think that's always the thing of what's amplified is the people who are talking about it. But what you forget is the countless, and that's something that always humbles me as a pastor specifically is just the faithfulness of so many people Mm -hmm. are never going to get book deals who no one's ever going to listen to beyond their local environment, who are never going to be celebrated in that kind of a way when that meet with our cultural definitions of success and like their congregation of 30 people in mm -hmm. rural Iowa. And they're mm -hmm. still there caring. They're still there. And like those stories to me, I'm like, that's the gift of those travels. That's a gift of concrete yeah. relationships. Oh it can feel that to me is the relationship between like the cosmic and the concrete yeah. because when you just sit back and reflect, it's like why so many people are cynical in grad school. Cause yeah. you're basically like, dude, things are like so shitty. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. especially once you, if you get any kind of education in like institutionalized forms of evil, sin, white supremacy, that's overwhelming. And then you look international of like, you know, systems of injustice, Yeah, that cosmic dealing with evil in the abstract, which overwhelms the spirit so profoundly and can leave mm -hmm. you so hopeless. Mm -hmm. And I've told this story before, but Daniel Berrigan, and I love the Berrigan brothers, those radical yeah, priests, yeah. those guys crack yeah. me up. But those, those 60s demonstrations, burning mm -hmm. draft papers, like mm -hmm. I just love it. And and Daniel Berrigan later in his life, when he was living in New York City in some little kind of Catholic spot, mm -hmm. someone asked him, like, the Catholic worker? Yeah, I don't know where he was staying, but he was somewhere up there being taken care of, but he was definitely involved with all that. Okay. And, uh, you know, someone asked him, like, a friend of his, like, a lot of the work, they're looking at Daniel Berrigan, they're like, you know, in the 60s, they thought we are, like, this is a turning point in global history. We're going to yeah. work towards peace. Like we can live and, they, and you need that imagination beyond war. But then he said like America's still in a constant culture of war. A lot of what you thought was going to happen didn't like kind of talking to him about the reality of where he was at. And they were asking him like what still keeps him hopeful, you know, at this point in his life when he's seen things fall apart and still has his heart open. And he said being, you know, what keeps me hopeful doing hopeful things. Mm-hmm. It wasn't reading the next book. It wasn't the next study. It was, you have to concretely feel resurrection energy around yeah. those two people who got out of jail. You have mm -hmm. to concretely feel, you have to do a hopeful thing. And all of a sudden you're like, like, why do you have a great conversation or do something with two to three people? Like it's two to three people, mm -hmm. you know, like doing something. Not everyone cares. Most people don't. Yeah. But yeah. somehow the embodiedness of our life, that incarnational mode of being, doing a hopeful thing with two people who you love, you're like, I all of a sudden just feel more hopeful about mm -hmm. life. And that, those are the stories and the concreteness of why those things do that to us. Yeah. It's so important. I mean I've been thinking about that a lot too. And just even the significance, uh, like we talk about 
we talk about justice and, uh, you know, doing the work of Shalom, all these different things. We talk about these, like the big things. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> this March, this movement, this, that, all of that is good. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's important not to neglect the small moments of doing justice and loving mercy. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, practicing peace, right. Mm. Uh, and imagining. So we spent time on this trip with, um, a woman named, uh, Rena Eggers Everett. So she's Megger Evers daughter. Mm. Right. And, um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Megger Evers, you know, his, he was a, he was a young leader within the civil rights movement in, in Jackson, Mississippi, um, who was assassinated by a Klan member at mm. the age of what, 38, seven, something like that. Um, yeah, he, he had led a, you know, he did a lot of work, but led uh, the charge around voting rights. And he was uh, the leaders of the NAACP in that area. And he was a, just a phenomenal leader, but he was, he was killed and he was killed right as he was, you know, in their driveway. Right. So, um, so when we were down there, we visited the house. Um, he was getting boxes out of the back of his car. And there was a, a Klan member right across the street with a rifle that just took him out. But um, sitting, one, just sitting with his daughter, Rena, I mean, she's in her 60s now. And just one, like, the spirit that she carried is really hard to put into words of what she was inviting all of us into the hospitality of that, but also the willingness to speak straight and speak truthfully. Mm -hmm. Um, But she told this story about how there was one, there was one day or one night she was in, you know, in bed, her dad wasn't home yet, but then came home and she, um, she was wondering, or she had asked him the question when he got home and he came in to say good night. Um, she said, daddy, do all white people hate us? Mm. Right. And, um, he said, I can't remember his exact words. Um, but in essence, he was just, he was basically saying, you know what, that like, that's, he was just instead of saying yes or no to that, it, it was you. I want you to. I want you to just keep learning how to love. Like just this whole this idea of continuing to embody this way of being in the world. But it was just this. It was this small moment with his, you know, young daughter at the time. That he, I don't even. He probably wouldn't remember something like right, that. Right, 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 right. But she carries that, and then it forms her for the work that she's doing. Right. And it's and I think for me, I'm like, wow, as a father with two daughters, what are the small the small moments where I'm inviting them into something? Mm. Right. That is. It is this work. It's not disconnected from this great justice work, because if we're the reality is, is we're not going to change the world in our lifetime. Right. What does it mean for us to actually do the work together with the generations that are coming behind us, right? Mm-hmm. To see ourselves as connected with them and to, you know, sowing, sowing these seeds of justice and love that will m- bear more and more fruit as the time goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, to not neglect those things either. Like that is significant work. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about that as well. 
Oh man, that's a that's a great story too. Yeah, and it's I think it's interesting as as a dad, like like I just I, I told Drew today for people listening in is my son my my son's name is True and he he turned three today actually. Mm-hmm. He's at school right now. We got a bunch of Lightning McQueen decorations in the living room. <laughs> that, that's he's on he's on the cars wave right now. And my daughter's five and man, five is so different from three and seven, I'm sure so different from five. And you're like, mm-hmm. you, it, sometimes you can forget as a dad how much power you have to plant those seeds in their imagination, those imaginative stories that they'll carry with them. They see you do something and you make one comment after and all of a sudden that is, for whatever yeah. the reason is, a critical sticking point story they remember with a feeling and yeah. emotion and a sense of, what it means attached to it, yeah. whether it's a justice thing or a caring for somebody or a seeing for somebody. And yeah. that is a great, well, I think one of my, my heart for people pastorally and one of the things that, you know, saddens me or frustrates me, or I just, you know, I feel for people is how many people feel disempowered. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like that really like, where it just feels like life's happening to me all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that's, that's a, that's a horrible thing. And that's a tough thing to break through is to discover that life doesn't just happen to us, but we've been created to happen to life and the power yeah, that of that agency that yeah. you were referring to, to like, you know, you, that's, that's a cool thing. As you get older, when you, the more you do stuff, the easier it is to do stuff. Yeah. So I don't think, well, failing? What is that? Like, I've already made a fool of myself so many damn times. You know, no one showed up to that, that church thing. Whatever, I'm over it. I've already been hurt. I accepted it. Yeah. You can just keep doing it. And that's the power of knowing that, like, yeah, you don't change the world on a global scale, but change is, always happens on scales. Yeah. You know, it always happens on scales and that, that mm. power and the creativity and the, the daringness, right? The audacity of the prophet and the poet to believe in their agency enough that that word, that thing, that conversation, whatever it is, can actually open up new possibilities. You know, that's mm-hmm. such a, a something we take for granted is people gravitate towards people who are in tune with their agency because mm. they just they're just doing it. Yeah. You know I'm saying yeah, yeah, that person's not, yes, it's hard. Of course you take it all in, but that person yeah. knows the power they have. Like you can let go of the power you don't need and discover the power that you have when you're wherever you are. You know? mm. Um, mm. So we have a, you know, we don't always have pastors on here, but you know, past do people call you pastor Drew? Some people do. Some yeah, just call do. me Drew. They're all, okay, Pastor Drew. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mean, I feel like the last word that you spoke was so good, but for the last word, you know, the, the sermon, you're rounding it. You prepared your sermon. You had it all tight. But the last conclusion, you had like two lines and you're like, I'll just finish it on the spot. I know how that goes when it comes to that ball, just like yeah, that yeah, part yeah. I got. Yeah. For people who are desiring struggling moments of excitement moments of despair let's say specifically with this podcast the church needs therapy to continue to stay committed to this tradition to continue Mm -hmm. to you know feel good about calling themselves a christian or to say Mm -hmm. i'm a follower of jesus you know like we know many people like that i'm sure 
yeah. for those people who are want the you know wanting more life wanting to create more life but also figuring out how to do that within our tradition when it's so mm -hmm. easy to just feel like i can't do this anymore because of the dominant expressions that are so frustrating the co-opting of power you talk about in the intro to your book what is your pastoral word for those people who are struggling to put together their personal journey and hope for the church for the future mm. He said, visit Hope East Village whenever you come. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, be, yeah, I mean, don't, like, let your story be your story. Mm. And let it do whatever it is it wants to do, right? It doesn't have to. I think part of the danger is when we're told that our stories are not valid, mm. that our pain is not valid, that our hurts not. Um, and we come from, so many of us come from traditions within the, within the church that are all about certainty and certitude. Mm. that don't that don't give space for the wrestling for the questioning for the the anger <laughs> you know what i mean like all all of those things and um which i just think is largely a result of a desire for power and control mm. right rather than the freedom to let the spirit blow where it wills. Mm -hmm. um, and when I, you know, for me, right. What's when I ask the question, what has kept me mm. connected to this tradition, this lineage, um, you know, a large part of it has been, I, I think it's twofold, right. It has been both the, something that so many of us have heard before, but just the sense of like, let me, let me just look at Jesus with fresh eyes, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, let me see the radical mm -hmm. contemplative that Jesus is and listen. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, there's something about that, that um, image of, Jesus with his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, mm. right? You know, in that story where they go up and Jesus starts to glow in front of them. And then all of a sudden appear Moses and Elijah mm. and the disciples are like, what? Like, let's, let's build altars to all three of you. Mm. And then there's this cloud that descends and Moses and Elijah are out of sight and this voice that speaks it says this is my son listen to him right mm -hmm. and there's something about that being standing in this longer tradition where it's like okay i i there are gifts to this tradition that i want to receive mm -hmm. but there's also a lot that i have to sift through mm -hmm. in order to see Jesus only. And it says, like, that's what it says in the text where it says mm, they lifted up their eyes and they saw Jesus only. Right. Mm, and I'm like, man, what is, 
what is that? Like, why? What's going on there? Um, but so for me, it's this, it's been this invitation to say, I can still, I can still receive the gifts of this thing, but when, like, how, how do I, how do I just see what it is that Jesus is wanting to invite me into of imagining this new world of coming, coming with him into this new thing. Um, and I think the second thing with that is that I've, there has, there, I've been around people who have abused and misused this, this, the name of Jesus and have hurt within this tradition. And I've been around people who have given me nothing but life, Mm. right? Who have been radical freedom fighters, Mm. who have done so out of this space of being followers of of the Jesus way. And I'm not saying that you can only get that from Jesus. Like, I think that there there are others in other religious traditions who have done that, right? I can just say that the Jesus way for me has always made sense, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of like, it's been, when I see it embodied, actually embodied in the people mm-hmm. who are who are doing this work for real, it does something in me mm-hmm. to say, there's something good here, right? There's something good here. And it's not just about me, there is this whole lineage of folks that I'm connected to, right? Um, this cloud of witnesses, if you will, right? Um, and you know, if if my if if my ancestors, there's so many of them who were given a version of Jesus that said Jesus is okay with your chains, if they were able to sort of dissect that and say, no, 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 my my God is a God of liberation. And take that and that turn into a movement of resistance and abolition and freedom. Like, I think I think I can do the same work today. Right. Where I've been given something, but yet I know that this 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 God is a God of justice and liberation and love and freedom. And. I, I, you know, so I I want I'm in this space of saying. How do I take that and turn that into active love in the world? Right. That's, that's where, that's where I'm at. And just being in that place of continuing to ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for everybody listening in, for those of you who want to rededicate your life tonight, uh, (laughs) just DM, DM Drew, what, what must I do to be saved? And then he can take it away from there. (laughs) No, man, I appreciate that so much. The the work, the, for people listening in the book, amazon.com, look it up. Drew Jackson, God speaks through wombs. Order that, get it on Kindle, get a, get the, get the hard copy version of it and support and one, just be inspired by the work there. Always got to support the poets mm-hmm. because we need them more than we realize in this world. And if you want to follow along with his journey, I think your Instagram is what? D Jackson Poetics. Yeah, yeah. 
Instagram, D Jackson Poetics. You can just look up Drew Jackson and follow him. You can follow, find him through my account, I'm sure, somehow. Mm-hmm. Buy his book. Go and read that. And God Speaks Through Wounds is his own retelling, telling, continuing of the Gospel of Luke, which we didn't get a chance to talk about, but it's this amazing yeah. journey that he can take us on to listen to those whispers of the spirit that are still calling us beyond today when so many people are so comfortable with the status quo. So check him out, follow along with his journey as much as you can. And Drew, man, I'm just so grateful. This was a good time, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, man. So good. So good. Thanks for having me. All right.